only reason we stand here, that is, that those who confess their sins and turn to Christ have the forgiveness of their sins. First uh, John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we make God out to be a liar. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our hope, our promise, and our comfort as we worship God this morning. Having heard then the promise of the gospel, let's also now open the word of God that he would teach us and instruct us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, and we'll read verses 6 through 23. Some of these verses we read last week, and hopefully they will uh, bring us up to speed again. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we 
The text on which we'll focus this morning is verses 16 through 23 of Colossians chapter 2. So last week we went through uh, verses 6 through 15, and now we'll pick up the argument again in verse 16. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as, as I just introduced, the message this morning is really a, a continuation of the argument and an application of the argument that we looked at last week. Uh, so I want to just start by brushing up on, on where we went last week. So in verses 6 through 15, Paul wrote about the importance, the necessity of staying focused on Christ, uh, not allowing ourselves to get taken captive by, by smart or eloquent people who will deceive us and, and shipwreck our faith. Um, we, we saw last week that, that Paul was dealing especially with certain cults, cults that uh, were related to Judaism but also borrowed from pagan mysticism. And it was the sort of cult that essentially said, you've made a good start with Jesus, but now if you really want to go deep into the heavenly mysteries, you need to start following us. Uh, because we have insights into secret heavenly truths and, and access to, to heavenly powers, uh, forces of the universe that you can only access through our teaching. It's persuasive. It, it, the proof that it's persuasive is, is there in the, the thousands and thousands of people that have run after these sorts of cults. Uh, and, and we saw last week how, how amazingly contemporary all of this is. How often these groups keep showing up. Uh, you can tell them uh, apart by when you, when you talk to them and they call themselves Christians and, and you say, well, yes, I'm a Christian too. And you want to talk about your, your mutual faith in Christ. And, and they immediately say, yes, that's great, that's great. But now you need to hear what, we, what our teachers have said about such and such a doctrine. There's very little attention to Christ. It's, it's yes, there's Christ, but you really want to go deep. Now you've got to start listening to our prophets, apostles, or, or whatever they be. Uh, and Paul's message to the Colossians was, in the first place, don't get fooled by it. It's smoke and mirrors. They don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and, and number two, even if they did know what they're talking about, what could they possibly offer you that you don't already have in far greater fullness in Christ? Uh, why would you be captivated by talk of, uh, of spiritual forces when Christ is, is God himself come to earth? H- how much higher do you get than God himself? Uh, also, with, with these rituals, why would you fall for things like circumcision and other rituals when they are only shadows and you have the reality in Christ. And when Christ lived and died and rose precisely to set you free from bondage to these sorts of things. Why would you go back to slavery? Well, that was Paul's message in in summary form in verses 6 through 15. And now he applies it in verses 16 through 23. Now, there's, there's two imperatives or commands in our text. Uh, there, it's first in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you. That's a command. And then again in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Uh, the big idea is this. These people are going to come. 
they will come to our church as well. And they're going to come with a show of outward religion and talk of spiritual mysteries. And it all looks impressive. And they're going to tell you that if you're not following their people, you're missing out on on great spiritual realities. Paul's saying, don't let them do this to you. Don't tolerate it. Don't fall for it. Uh, that's what this text and that's what this sermon is, is all about in, in its application in the details. So he says, first of all, in, in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Uh, now the first thing that, that should be said is don't read only half of the verse. Um, there are Christians who read the first uh, what, five or six words of this verse, seven or eight, therefore let no one pass judgment on you, period. Well, that's not exactly what Paul says. Um, there, there are places where we are called to discernment, where we should use judgment, and where God's word does say, this is right, this is wrong. Uh, so read the whole, the whole verse. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. This is what you call ritualism, or, or ceremonialism. Uh, and what these people are doing is, they're, what they're, they're saying is, uh, this is, these are the things that you have to do in order to be really spiritual people. You have to eat these foods, but not those foods. Uh, you, you have to drink this, but don't drink that. Uh, you have to celebrate these holy days. And, and if you don't follow our guidelines, you might still be Christian, but you're a second-class, sort of inferior, less spiritual Christian, and maybe not Christian at all. Now, I don't want us just to laugh at, at this, this sort of thing for the silliness that it is and, and just move along. To some degree, this, this command should hit home for all of us because we are all inclined to do this very sort of thing, to pass judgment on others in regards to these sorts of things. Uh, to give some examples, uh, some of us may be vegetarians. Maybe we have some vegans in our midst. And it's very easy to go from, I'm vegetarian, to vegetarianism is more spiritual, to other people are therefore less spiritual. Everybody ought to be what I am. Now, there's nothing wrong with being vegetarian. Uh, but it so easily becomes in our minds a sort of spiritual law that we now want to impose on everyone else. Uh, some of you, uh, to give another example, don't drink alcohol. And, and it's so easy to go from, I don't drink alcohol, to I must be more spiritual and other people less spiritual because uh, they drink alcohol. You make it a religious rule and impose it on others. Uh, this works in reverse as well. Uh, some of us enjoy a drink of alcohol, and, and, and we start to think that, that Christians who don't drink must be less spiritual. They, they don't have the same freedom that we have. Uh, they must be less spiritual than we are. It's the same thing. We go from our practice to imposing that as a law on others. And then there, there are some of those extremes where uh, they drink craft beer and they say that people who don't drink craft beer, uh, I've never seen this, I've just heard of it, uh, it must be somehow less spiritual. Uh, we do this, we go from what we do 
to this must be better, this must be right. Uh, there, there are some, some perhaps more uncomfortable examples of this sorts of things. The, the rules that we have for Sundays. Uh, all of us are going to have different rules about how we dress, what activities we take part in, uh, things like you know, whether we use the computer or not. Uh, and there's nothing wrong, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with having these rules in our homes as we see fit uh, to, to say this is how in our family we're going to honor the Lord's day. Uh, these are what you would call house rules. Uh, we might decide, for example, uh, for our house, we, we don't have a TV in our house. Uh, and, and the reason is because we know how much junk is out there and, and we don't want to let that into our homes. Uh, that's a perfectly fine house rule. Uh, or we might decide that our family is not going to engage in a specific activity, uh, let's say playing sports on, on Sundays, uh, because we want to keep it a day devoted to the Lord. Is that an okay house rule? Sure it is. Uh, is, that, is that legalism? Some, some people would say that's legalism. Uh, no, it's not legalism. We're allowed to have house rules. In fact, it's a mark of wisdom to have house rules. Uh, and to some degree, it's inevitable. Every house operates by a certain set of written or unwritten rules. Uh, and, and it's a mark of wisdom to be thoughtful and, and deliberate in, in crafting those rules and putting them together. What we don't want to do is make the mistake of confusing our rules with God's rules, our house rules with God's rules. So there are God's rules as well. For example, don't get drunk. That's not a house rule. That's God's rule. Uh, don't allow immorality in your home through your entertainment or any other means. That's, that's, not, that's not our rule. That's, that's God's rule. Uh, worship the Lord together with His people. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Don't forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Uh, that's God's rule, not a house rule. Uh, but then there are also our house rules. How are we going to apply these things? How am I not going to get drunk? Some will say, I will not drink any alcohol. Some will moderate uh, their alcohol. How will I honor the Lord's Day? By meeting together with, with God's people wherever they worship. Uh, some will say, uh, they will have their, their, their various house rules to determine how that's going to happen. Some are going to say, we're not going to play sports because that's going to distract from the purpose of the day. A perfectly fine house rule. Don't confuse your house rules with God's rules. Uh, we have house rules as a church as well. Uh, and, and again, to, to some extent, you can't avoid having these rules. Uh, so we have a church order in the back of our book of praise uh, that lays out our house rules as a church. Uh, so, for example, it, it says that uh, our churches meet together in classes once every, every three months and, and at synod once every three years. Is that God's rule? No, it's a house rule, uh, and, and that's perfectly fine. God's rule is that we, we demonstrate unity, we support one another uh, with, in fellowship and help one another with wise counsel as one church to another church. That's, that's God's rule. This is how we have decided to do it. Uh, so Paul is not saying here, don't live by rules or, or don't make rules for yourselves. Not all rulemaking is, is legalism or, or false spirituality. There is an antinomianism, an anti-lawism, that's what the word means, that, that says anyone who makes rules is a legalist. And, and there are people that, that sometimes walk away from the church saying they're all legalists 
And, and the evidence they cite is, is, look at these rules that they have. That's well, not legalism to have rules. It's legalism to confuse your rules with God's rules and to make your rules the measure of your spirituality or, or the spirituality of others. That's when it becomes legalism. Um, and, and cults in particular, um, oftentimes in cults, these rules have nothing to do at all with real spirituality. Uh, so, it, for example, in the Pentecostal churches in Brazil, I recognize that's not necessarily a cult, but uh, the, in the Pentecostal churches in Brazil, it, it's considered ungodly to play soccer. Uh, not just on Sunday, on any day. It, it's a worldly thing to play soccer. This is very, very big in, in Brazilian culture. Uh, it, it's ungodly also to wear shorts. Again, any day of the week. It's, it's considered less spiritual to wear shorts. Now, these things have nothing to do with, with real uh, spirituality. They have nothing to do with Christ. They've so confused their house rules with God's rules that they start measuring their spirituality by a standard that has nothing to do with God. And that's what Paul is talking about. Uh, where it's certain, uh, what you could say, essentially irrelevant practices that become the measure of our spirituality. Things that have nothing to do with Christ at all. Uh, Paul specifically mentions food, drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Now, you notice most of these were elements of Judaism, uh, which show again that this cult is, is coming from a Jewish background. Uh, and so we can't imagine that for many, many Jews... Uh, coming out of the Old Testament, being introduced to the Christian faith, it would have been hard uh, to, to recognize that some of these things that used to be God's rules are, are only shadows. Uh, they're, they're, they're temporal. They don't last forever. Uh, that's a hard transition to make. We see that, for example, in Peter, when the Lord Jesus appears to Peter in a vision and, and lays out a spread of, of unclean foods and says, Rise up, Peter, and eat. And, and, and Peter is troubled by that. Uh, Lord, how could I eat this? This is unclean food. But there the Lord Jesus is teaching him, these things were, those rules were temporal. They don't last forever. Uh, nonetheless, there, there were many Jewish Christians who kept on living by, by the Old Testament rules. And in some cases, that was perfectly fine. Uh, the, there's no law that you now must eat unclean foods. It's just you are free to eat unclean food. So there were some Jews uh, who became Christians who kept on living by the Old Testament rules as a matter of conscience. This was, this was what they were used to, and, and they were very uncomfortable doing otherwise. But it quickly becomes more than just your house rule. It quickly becomes your standard of judging others, your measure of, of your spirituality. Uh, and so Paul reminds them, as far as those things go, they are a shadow of the things to come. Uh, the substance belongs to Christ. As Christians, we recognize that, that all of these Old Testament ceremonies, laws about clean and unclean foods, uh, about sacrifices, about uh, feast days, uh, they are shadows that teach things about Christ, that point forward to Christ, but were not meant to last forever. As the book of Hebrews teaches us, these, none of these sacrifices took away sins. And every, every Jew who understood the Old Testament would have understood that. Uh, they are pictures of what God will do to take away our sins. Uh, the sacrifice of Christ 
is the reality. He takes away our sins. Uh, So Paul says these are shadows. The reality is found in Christ. And when the reality comes, you shouldn't care that much about the shadows anymore. Uh, One pastor gave a a wonderful illustration. He was uh, saying he was at the zoo and and lost track of his wife and kids. And he's looking around and he sees their shadow uh, right behind a a building. He looks around the corner and he sees the shadow of his wife and his his kids. And he recognizes uh, the the family. And so he turns around the the building and, and there his family is. Now, from that point on, he's not looking at their shadow anymore. He's not interested in the shadow. It's gone. He doesn't care about the shadow, because he's now found the reality. Uh, so it is with Christ. Uh, when, when Christ comes, when Christ has come, uh, now that Christ has come, we don't care about the shadows anymore. We care about uh, the reality. Now, Paul also mentions Sabbaths in, in this list. And, and we do well to stop and, and think about that carefully, because that hits home uh, close to us, I suspect, in a Reformed church. Uh, Paul says it pretty clearly. Do not let anyone pass judgment on you in regard to a Sabbath. This is why we do not regard Sunday as the New Testament Sabbath. Uh, there, there are some who teach that the Sabbath just switched from Saturday to Sunday. I don't see how you can defend that from Scripture. Paul says it very clearly. Do not pass judgment with regards to a Sabbath. The plain meaning of that is uh, that, that the Sabbath is no longer God's rule. It is, uh, at best, a house rule. It's a shadow that points to a reality. And that would be true, then, whether we're talking about Saturday or Sunday. If Paul had understood, just, just think about how he's, how he's thinking through this, If Paul had understood that the Sabbath had shifted from Saturday to Sunday, you would would certainly expect an explanation in a context like this. You wouldn't say, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in regard to the Sabbath. Uh, You see the same thing in other places in Paul's writing. Uh, Romans 14, Paul says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Uh, There's no mandatory obligation, uh, as there was in the Old Testament, to set apart Sunday as, as, as a Sabbath, a day of, of resting from all our work and, and of, uh, of doing the things that the Old Testament required us to do. The early Christians were very clear about this. They understood the Sabbath as having been fulfilled in Christ. It pointed ahead to the spiritual rest uh, and, and worship that God's people would enjoy in the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and and this, was, this was for the first several centuries at least that this was unanimous in early Christianity. They never spoke about an ongoing Sabbath except the Sabbath of eternity, the Sabbath that we still look forward to. That being said, of course we recognize the principle of the commandment certainly still applies. That our life is not about our work. Our life is about worship. We live not to work. We live to worship. And, 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 and therefore we should rest on a regular basis in order to stop and to worship the Lord God. To remember that this is what life 
is all about. Uh, we're, we're mature Christians. We can think through these things and live by them. Uh, so that's why the early Christians did this on Sunday. Every Sunday they set apart uh, to the best of their ability as a day of rest in honor of the principle that we live to worship, not to work. And this is why John also, when he received the Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, um, he, he tells us, this, us that this happened on the Lord's day. They had already begun calling Sunday the day of the Lord, because that was their day to, to be together as a church and to worship the Lord. Uh, but they did not regard it as the same thing as the Old Testament Sabbath. Uh, it's very clear from the writings of the church fathers, and, and frankly, it's clear enough from the writings of Paul. Uh, so we, we should not call Sunday the Sabbath. Uh, we call it the day of rest. It's the day we set apart to rest and to worship the Lord. Uh, and, and so that's the principle, then, that the Fourth Commandment ultimately teaches. It's what the Reformation, uh, the Reformers in the time of the Reformation also taught. There's a principle uh, that, that is still ongoing. Uh, since Sunday is the day the Lord rose from the dead, we choose that as the day that we worship Him together. We rejoice in, in His resurrection. And we do so uh, not because there's some law forcing us to do so, we do so because filled with the Spirit, we want to do so. We want to be where Christ's people are to worship Him together. Uh, we, we recognize how, how easy it is to be enslaved by our work. And so we have this day and we do well to set the day entirely apart so that we don't become enslaved. It's not a matter of have to. Uh, it's a matter of being filled with the Spirit. We want to. Uh, this is why it's, it's so foolish to get into arguments about what, what is allowed and, and what is not allowed on Sunday. It's the kind of argument that belongs to those who are still under the law, uh, who, who want to know, how much can I get away with? Uh, how close to the edge of the law can I get while still being within the confines of the law? It's not about what's allowed it's about what's best. How do we use this day to best honor the Lord and worship Him? Uh, what that means is that because, uh, because our love for God exists within us, give, given by the Spirit, we want to be asking, how can I use this day to make worship the priority of my life? Uh, how can I use the day also to, to visit, to comfort uh, to encourage uh, one another, to take the time to rest, to rejoice, to be in God's Word, to be, uh, to be available in prayer also. Um, how can I make the most of the day, not how can I do the least during this day? Uh, now, of course, that does mean that where possible, we do well to leave our daily work aside. If we're working all day Sunday, we're not worshiping, and then we're not honoring the principle uh, that we were made to worship. And, and then we're also not keeping the command of Christ to, to, to be regular in our meeting together. Again, Hebrews 10, verse uh, 25, I believe, uh, don't give up the habit of meeting regularly. Uh, now, not all Christians can do this. Many of the early Christians were slaves. Uh, they could not. 
uh, take the day off. And yet they still made the time. They, they honored their masters. They, they worked to be in favor with their masters. And they, they set apart the time to still be able to worship the Lord with the rest of, of, of the, the Christians in their community. Um, and, and that's why what we want to think about is, is worship your highest priority. And that's why it's not wrong. It's not wrong for consistory also to, to talk to you about your Sunday habits. It's not because Sunday is the Sabbath. It's because your Sunday habits reveal your priorities. If you say, I'd rather work than be there with God's people, that reveals your priorities, and that is a matter of concern. The consistory is there to shepherd, to guide the people of God, and, and those are the indicators that show where our priorities lie. Uh, so again, we honor Sunday as a day of worship, not because we regard it as the Sabbath. Uh, that then uh, should help us to understand these statements from Paul. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you in regards to a Sabbath. Uh, don't let them put Old Testament Sabbath laws upon you. They do not belong on the backs of Christians. There, there, there's our, our long aside, and we, have to, we had to do that. Uh, because I'm, I'm certain that there are those who, who read a verse like this and wonder, what does Paul mean? Again, the warning is against those who make, make religion out of meaningless, irrelevant rituals that have nothing to do with Christ. Uh, they are, at best, shadows that belong to the Old Testament, at worst, inventions of human minds, inventions of cults, uh, which are utterly meaningless and useless. And you see Paul talking very strongly about these sorts of things, especially in verses uh, 22 and 23. Uh, they have an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can be very religious and very worldly and fleshly. And, and the, the Pharisees who crucified the Lord Jesus are the chief example of that. The most religious people you find who were ultimately in love with the world. Now Paul also deals um, with something that you might call mysticism. That's in verse 18. Uh, shifting topics. Uh, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. This is where those, those cults also borrowed from some of the pagan mysticism of their day. So they borrowed from Judaism with the Old Testament rituals, and they borrowed from paganism uh, with, with some of these visions, the worship of angels, uh, and, and asceticism, and things like that. Uh, asceticism refers to harsh treatment of the body. It's, it's depriving the body of, of the, the basic needs that the body has with the belief that this will, will make you more spiritual. Uh, things like uh, excessive fasting. Now, fasting, of course, is, is not wrong. It's a biblical practice, and, and there's room for that in, in our age as well, in certain seasons, if it's done for the right reasons. Uh, but this is excessive fasting, starving the body uh, out of a belief that, that it makes you more spiritual. Uh, things like depriving yourself of sleep uh, as a way to higher spirituality. Depriving yourself of sex, uh, celibacy, uh, making vows that you will never marry uh, as a belief that this somehow makes you more spiritual. 
Uh, and, and the idea behind this is that uh, bodily pleasure is evil. This is the, the Greek thinking that existed behind it. Bodily pleasure is all evil, and the more you can avoid, the more spiritual you are. Uh, they also believe that uh, sometimes in, the, in the, the moments of weakness that this produces in the body, when your, your mind starts to go, you start to get lightheaded, uh, that's the moments when your mind is also opened up to, to these spiritual mysteries. Uh, it's similar to certain strands of Buddhism today where uh, you deny yourself bodily pleasure as a path to greater enlightenment. Uh, so the more you starve your body, the more you open your mind. That's, that's the philosophy behind this. And, and so Paul connects this asceticism also with the worship of angels and receiving visions. As, as you're in that bodily state, you start to have hallucinations, visions of angels that they believed were uh, the, the path to greater enlightenment. Uh, now when he speaks of this worship of angels, there's, there's two ways you can interpret it, and, and commentaries go both ways. It's either worshiping angels or participating in angelic forms of worship. Uh, you hear the difference between that. So one, uh, the angel is the object of your worship. The other is you're worshiping together with the angels on some higher spiritual plane. Uh, there's no evidence of any Jewish cults that worshipped angels. It's a completely foreign concept. But there were lots of Jewish cults that obsessed with uh, angelic worship, um, that believing that they could participate in angelic forms of worship. Uh, and they all claim to have then this, this insight, this access into these heavenly mysteries. And the idea then is that if you follow their rituals, you follow their ceremonies, you'll get there to this, this enlightenment, this, this insight into what goes on in heavens, in, in the heavens. And this is why Paul also talks about visions. Uh, they, they have these, these visions. Uh, and really, all of this is so contemporary. You see this in Christian cults today. Uh, you think of the Mormon church, uh, where Joseph Smith has this, these visions uh, that he receives, uh, these golden tablets that he gets from the angel Moroni, and, and, and they, they show these heavenly mysteries. Uh, the truth is, and we need to think about this, this stuff is seductive. It's incredibly seductive. Uh, there's a reason that the Mormon church has exploded all over the globe. Uh, I said this last week as well. When people are unimpressed with Christ, when Christ is just meh, just insignificant to them, uh, when they don't know Christ, they don't have a relationship with Christ, they are sitting ducks for these sorts of cults. They will get swept up by something that's more impressive. Now, Paul, Paul uses hard words for this. Uh, he, he says they are puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds, or, or literally in the Greek, their, their fleshly minds. So these are, these are cults that obsess with how evil the flesh is and how good the mind is. And he says, their minds are fleshly. Uh, they're, they're still ruled by the old nature that hates God and hates others. Uh, they become proud, they, they become arrogant, they suppose themselves to be ultra-spiritual, and they are duped by their own wandering, sensuous, fleshly minds. Again, this is so contemporary. If you know people like this, you know exactly what Paul is talking about. Uh, they're so spiritual 
in their minds, in their own vision of, of themselves, and they're so pathetically carnal in their hearts. Their hearts are totally in love with the world. They're insufferably proud, uh, but, but they have nothing to be proud of except their own self-made religion. Uh, they wander from one idea to another and have nothing of substance to carry with them. Uh, and the worst accusation that Paul makes comes in verse 19. And this really gets to the heart of the issue. So again, he says, They're puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds while not holding fast to the head. That's the heart of the matter. They're not holding fast to Christ. How could they be better Christians? This is why they completely miss the point. Uh, They obsess about all these questions of food and drink and holy days, and and they love to talk about their spiritual experiences and their spiritual superiority, their visions, and they have no relationship with Christ. And they regard themselves as better Christians than those who do. That's why this whole, uh, these cults are so turned on their heads. They don't hold fast to Christ, and if you don't hold fast to Christ, You have nothing at all. Uh, If Christ is the head, you are the body. And as the body, you should hold fast to the head. If you stop holding fast, you're no longer part of the body. You can have uh, all kinds of amazing theology, profound insights and religious practices, but if you have no relationship with Christ, you have nothing at all. An arm or a leg is useless if it's not connected to the head. And and so as Christians, for us, if it means anything to be Christian, the first, uh, the thing that is is first and foremost is relationship and union with Christ. If you don't have that, what do you have? Uh, What does anyone think they're doing? Talking about their own spiritual superiority if they're not interested in Christ. If they don't know Christ, what do they think they have? Uh, Paul also mentions It's an interesting point. He also mentions the rest of the body. So he says again, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. Uh, What Paul is saying is that uh, as Christians, our first and our foremost source of life is is of course from God, through the head which is Christ, but it will get channeled down to you also through the rest of the body, uh, nourished and knit together by all the joints and ligaments that exist here in the church, in the body. So another way to know that you're on the wrong track is if you're all on your own. You're following your own spiritual superiority, disconnecting yourself from the body of Christ. You're on the wrong track. Uh, If you're not nourished and knit together, you're not growing with a growth that comes from God. You might be uh, growing with a false growth that comes from yourself, but it's not true Christian growth. Uh, now, we, we know what he's referring there because he, it's the second time he uses that phrase. The first time is all the way back in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, so he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Uh, so uh, the joints and ligaments he's talking about here, this being knit together uh, is, is clearly referring to the life 
that comes from Christ through your brothers and sisters. You need that life if you're going to make it as a Christian. You need the nourishment that comes from the body. Uh, So what Paul is saying is the way we grow spiritually is first and foremost by holding to the head and also by holding on and being a part of a living, active part of the body. And he says that is the divine growth. When you grow in relation to Christ together with the body, your growth is coming from God. He says it grows with the growth that comes from God. God does mighty things through his church in the midst of a people that hold fast to Christ and hold fast to one another. And again, it shows how how completely this this kind of false religion, how completely it misses the point. Uh, You can so easily get obsessed with your spirituality, your rules, your food and drink and your holy days, and all your, your supposedly religious practices while having no relationship with Christ, no relationship with the body of Christ, and you're completely missing the point of Christianity. Uh, Paul, Paul reminds us again in verse 20, if we're united to Christ, we've died to all these sorts of things, these, these forces of the universe that you suppose you, you have access to. You're dead to all of that. You're missing the point. There's only two kinds of religion in the world. There's man's attempt to control God, and there's God's grace reaching down to man. When you're bought with the blood of Christ, you are, you are an heir of God's grace reaching down to you. Don't live by your religiosity reaching back up to God on your own terms. And, and Paul reminds us just of how silly it all is. Uh, he, he talks, uh, this is verse, uh, verse 22, beginning of verse 22. He talks about these people are obsessing over what, to, what you can and can't handle, what you can and can't taste, uh, what you can't, can and can't touch. And he's, he's obviously referring especially to foods here. And he says all these rules concern things that perish anyways as you use them. In other words, are you really more holy than the next person because of what you eat? Because it all comes out exactly the same as anyone else. Uh, that's not my point. That's Paul's point. It, it, it's a crude way of saying, if your religion is based upon what goes into the toilet, uh, that's probably missing the point. And, and that's what, many, for many of them, that is their religion. What I eat, what I drink, that's what makes me spiritual. Paul says that's, that's absurd. It's, it's silly. Uh, now, Paul admits it does look impressive. He says that in verse 23. It does... Uh, it, it does appear wise. There is within us a natural attraction to that kind of, of religion because it looks like it's really spiritual, really oriented towards God. Look at these people fasting and, and beating their bodies and, and going through all this. And we look at that and we think, I could never do that. So they must be more spiritual than me. I could never take a vow of celibacy. So they must have a, a greater level of the Spirit th- than I do. Uh, well, no, they just have greater pride, greater self-religion. Uh, Paul says they have the appearance of wisdom, but it does nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. And if it's useless for that, 
What is it useful for? If it doesn't fight against your, your true sinful nature, the rebellion that we have in our hearts against God, if it's no use in stopping that, it's useless. What's it good for? Apart from relationship with Christ, it's man-made religion. Uh, this is why it sometimes happens also that you have people uh, within the church who, who live like this, full of rules, full of judgment on, on all those who don't follow their rules, uh, and they love to talk about how ungodly or unspiritual uh, everyone else is, and then it suddenly comes out that they've been living in grievous sin uh, for many years. That, that often happens. It's a pattern that repeats itself. Why? Because it's outward religion has no relationship with Christ, and it's useless for stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, we see this in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, to be frank, uh, right now. You, you see it with the, the, the sexual abuse scandals. They take a vow of celibacy, and then they spend their lives, many of them, uh, abusing uh, and, and engaging in immoral sexuality. It doesn't stop the indulgence of the flesh. You make your own rules into God's rules. You impose it on everyone else. And meanwhile, you're living in sin, uh, living by the standards of the world. The heart of the Christian life, then, to bring this down to the point, the heart of the Christian life is knowing Christ, living out of the gospel, out of our inheritance to Christ. That is the only path to spiritual growth. Uh, There are no spiritual giants except those who have been who have been brought into, into a sweet, humble, joyful relationship with Christ. It's the only way to grow as a Christian. Anything else is missing the point. And so, brothers and sisters, don't get fooled by anything else. Don't get caught up in questions of food, drink, festivals, etc. They are not the point. Don't let spiritual gurus lead you off on a path that ultimately takes you away from Christ. And above all, the exhortation goes back to the same point you're going to hear every single sermon in Colossians. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Remember every single day what God has done for you in Christ, where you came from, out of the kingdom of darkness, where He's brought you, into the kingdom of His Son. Remember it and give thanks to God for that. Every single day. Talk about him also with one another. Encourage one another and remind each other of what God has done for you in Christ. The more you fix your eyes on Christ, the more you will grow and you will experience. Remember two sermons ago, the, the, the riches uh, of, of the, the glory of God's mystery in Christ. You want those riches, you'll find them in Christ. Uh, so grow in relationship with Christ, and you will grow in the recognition and and acquisition of the glory of God given to you in Christ. Amen.